Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So fulfilling a long-awaited and very exciting Patreon request from listener Jay, this week we are discussing one of Overinvested's favourite movies, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. We assume uh, that most of you know the general gist of this movie, but for those who don't, it is the second film in Marvel's Captain America franchise, starring Chris Evans as Captain America, Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, and Sebastian Stan as the Winter Soldier. It is a contemporary spy thriller about Captain America reuniting with his childhood best friend, who is now a mind-controlled amnesiac super soldier. Um, I think both of us would list this in our kind of top three Marvel movies alongside Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther. I would put Black Panther number one. However, Captain America the Winter Soldier is probably my favourite superhero movie. Um, And generally we have a lot of affection and obsessive minutiae kind of attention to detail for this film. We know a lot. We've thought a lot about it. I imagine that most listeners know this, but this film has a, a truly unholy volume of kind of fandom output in the kind of 2014-2015 zone um, for good reason. It absolutely earned it. There's a lot to dig into in this one. <laughs> yes, the hundreds of thousands of words of fanfiction that I have written about this movie, truly horrifying to contemplate currently. I mean, I'm very proud, but my God, what a short span terrifying. of time and what a large yeah. number of words. <laughs> and we, we have also seen it several times. Um, and I think before we get going... We have actually already recorded a audio commentary track for this. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, like $3 above, I think it is, you can just go and download our audio commentary and watch along before the podcast. So we kind of, we rewatched together. It's been a few years since we've watched it both. So uh, we had an interesting time discussing that film as it went, if you want to rewatch first or watch for the first time. Yes. It would be amazing if we were to introduce you to this masterpiece. <laughs> Talking over all of yes. the dialogue. Yes. Yeah. Like, well, there's like 90% of the film was us like already knowing, <laughs> knowing everything in the film, obviously, and having lots of insight from our many years of obsession. But there was also like a couple of things that we kind of only picked up on this time. And one of those is just how incredibly talky this film is compared to every other Marvel film apart from Iron Man, which is like a very dialogue heavy kind of improvised comedy movie. But this film is like, it's really well written. Um, It actually has the same creative team as the later Avengers movies. So it's directed by the Russo brothers. It's like their first big movie. A surprising thing, because before that they'd mostly done sitcoms. And it's written by Chris Marcus and Steve McFeely. So this creative team did Captain America, The Winter Soldier. The writers also did the first Captain America. But then they went on to do Captain America 3 and then Avengers Infinity War and the upcoming Avengers Endgame. And all of those last three films are just massive blockbuster team superhero films obviously we've not seen Endgame yet but like Civil War and Infinity War are just this huge flailing mass of nonsense (laughs) they're not like awful but they are so different from this movie in every way because they don't really have particularly coherent characterization or anything because there are so many characters they are very much just of the superhero genre, not in the sense they're like a superhero comic, but they are just like that blockbuster genre that where millions of people go and watch these films and they're like, we enjoyed ourselves. Whereas The Winter Soldier is a superhero movie, obviously, but it's also very clearly modelled on kind of Cold War spy thrillers and it's kind of political content is very thoughtful and characterization and emotions wise it is one of the best 
in the superhero kind of subgenre. It's just it's so kind of tightly written by comparison. And also kind of the lead the lead roles are just like much more interesting. Well, it was really interesting for me to watch it this time. We should say that we will be spoiling this whole movie throughout this entire podcast. Oh, God, so yeah. Like, if you're, if yeah. for some reason you have not seen this, um, go watch it. I mean, it's also like, oh, what's the spoiler? Like, I mean, oh, Bucky's yeah. the Winter Soldier. <laughs> right. <laughs> it makes less sense if you don't know that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I watched this movie last couple of years ago with my mother, who had not seen it. And... Um, I, at that point, was like, oh, this movie definitely isn't as good at all as I had recalled. And I think that's a sort of natural come down from having spent a long period of time in the throes of, like, deep obsession with something. And this time watching it, I swung back in the other direction and was like, oh, no, actually, this is really great. And I think that a lot of that was that there have just been so many superhero movies recently that we've kind of all been suffering from superhero fatigue and that this one unlike certain films that have come out recently in my opinion for instance captain marvel is just really well done and is different than a lot of the ones that have come out so it yeah, is well, I mean, really when you talking think about, like how even if you are someone who really enjoyed captain marvel i think you can definitely agree that it is a very kind of basic and quite formulaic film right and the kind of especially dialogue writing but the writing in general is not complex on any level and in this film like I said it's really talky something that I didn't even pick up on before just because like it's so easy to watch because it is just it's just a really straightforward blockbuster but like there are so many scenes where there are literally just characters standing in a room and having lengthy meaningful conversations that are not exposition you know there's this like great scene where it's just Samuel L. Jackson talking about his grandfather while he and Captain America are in a lift and then there are scenes where it's like Robert Redford talking about his career as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's like, wow, what the fuck? Like, well, you're not like, oh, quick, get to like Zorgon 5, Captain, which is usually what the dialogue right. like. <laughs> well, what's really interesting about that is that then when they do get to the more cliched superhero movie stuff, by which I mean when they get to the like nonsense Hydra explanation at the end, which we will discuss further later in this podcast it's just charming charmingly silly so stupid (laughs) it feels more sort of egregiously dumb i think because the rest of the movie is so grounded in reality there just isn't a lot of like actual superhero-ish stuff and i'm a person who when superhero movies are executed well really likes them like i think the best i think the best superhero movie is thor ragnarok and that obviously is like that's a fucking superhero movie. Like it's it's silly. It's very brightly colored. Like it has also very real themes and issues that are connected to the real world. But it's not like this movie at all. But because so much of this film is so grounded, it it's just sort of interesting that then when you switch to the like Zola talking from a computer stuff, it's very jarring because they so successfully make you feel like you're watching a more serious in quotes movie which i think is a credit to them in a lot of ways but then it's sort of like oh you have to do the superhero thing too you're not just making like a drama right (laughs) well like the interesting thing about captain america as a character who listeners will probably know is my just i love him i love him Uh, so much (laughs) maybe not in the comics so much like it's like in the comics black panther is my favorite character and in the movies it's captain america because comics captain america is all over the place but of all of the characters 
in the MCU, like the main leads and probably like superheroes in general, Captain America is the one whose powers are kind of least relevant because his powers are like really basic. He has kind of super strength, but not like Superman levels. So he can, you know, he can punch really hard and he's very resilient um, and that kind of thing. But like the actual thing that's important about him is his kind of cultural role within the universe. So it's like in the first film, after he kind of gets his powers from this military experiment, his first role is to go on a propaganda campaign. You know, he's part of the wartime propaganda effort, which is like just such an interesting way to spin that character. And then in the kind of the latter half of the film when he's doing heroic stuff, it's generally not hugely to do with powers, it's to do with like his personal moral choices and like the relationships he has. And then in this film, it's like he has become detached from his identity because he's woken up in the 21st century, he's completely isolated and like Morgan's going to go into this a bit more in a minute, but like he's so fucking depressed. Like this is a this is a sad dark film, and I think the reason why people don't think of it as a dark film is because people have a very shallow idea of what a dark superhero movie is. Because like first of all, it's literally filmed in the dark, and second of all, it's like oh, it's really gritty and there's loads of violence. Whereas the violence in this is completely standard for the MCU. Um, it's well choreographed, which we'll go into, but like it's not oh, here's some like really edgy sort of like limbs getting hacked off. It's not bloody or anything like that. But like the emotional story is very dark and um he is unlike in cap unlike in the first avengers movie he's not kind of wearing this really brightly colored captain america uniform he's wearing his stealth outfit and he's going on missions with shield which are very kind of morally unclear you know his first big mission in this movie is him and black widow and a team of shield agents getting sent down to this ship to like go on a rescue mission but it turns out that black widow has a secret other mission to gain some information and steve rogers is obviously like really unsettled because he doesn't know everything that's going on and he no, no, no longer knows what his role is in the world and he's completely isolated on a personal level because he all of his friends are dead. And like, he literally like makes gallows humor jokes about this, which I think is part of the reason why he's such a popular kind of millennial character on Tumblr. <laughs> but like, he literally has this one liner where like, you know, Black Widow's like, hey, what are you doing tonight? And he's like, well, all the members of my barbershop quartet are dead. So, <laughs> but it's like, it's like, it's funny, but it's also like, he literally lives in like this apartment, which is clearly being decorated by like, you know, shield house decoration team number four and has no social life. And like, they literally like introduce like the character Sam Wilson as, as his new friend. And because it's like such a kind of, they have to have this character who is like completely emotionally open and they get like a romantic meet cute in the park because there's no other way to like get someone to force themselves through Steve Rogers' defences. But yeah, like in terms of powers, they're relevant for fight scenes, but his actual kind of role in the film is to make a political decision to expose the rotten underbelly of the military intelligence organization he's been working for and to reveal that they've been doing evil under America's watchful eye. So <laughs> that's like some, it's different. Like they, they frame it around like a big kind of bombastic action sequence where they slam a bunch of helicarriers together. But it's very different from the usual thing where it's like, we're going to go and defeat a supervillain. Yes. I mean, thinking about the best movies in the MCU... And I mean, good films in general, obviously. Like, the best ones are so clearly the ones that have, like, capital T themes, right? So, Thor Ragnarok is about post-colonialism. Black Panther... I mean, it's also about colonialism, but in a very different way. It's about American imperialism, but also kind yeah. of, like, African diaspora cultural identity. Yeah, like, Afrofuturism was the word I was looking for. And sort of differing ideas about... Uh, interventionism and 
colonialism and, and etc. Um, and then the fourth one I would put in the category of like the top tier is Iron Man, which has yeah, lots of it's ideas. It's like a Bush which are... era military movie. Exactly. And some of the stuff that it's doing is sort of like, what is happening? But the ideas are there. It's just that it's kind of very rooted in 2008 in a very interesting way, right? And also it's literally the first fucking one. So, <laughs> Right, yeah. And this movie, there's all of this stuff about drones, which is so fascinating. Like this is- And surveillance. Yes, exactly. So the whole idea is that they have these huge- things that are going to go up into the sky can just shoot everybody down based on their like internet profile which of course is like the algorithm which became this ridiculous meme because they're like how do we know how to kill the algorithm it's like what the fuck does that mean and they're like, like okay. deploy the algorithm put it in the shoot and it's like what <laughs> right but it's based on nominally like, surveillance of people's online behavior yeah it fucking came out before we found out about prism so this is a film that is about prism that happened like what two years before prison yeah um and i was saying on the commentary track iron man is such a classic bush era movie and i haven't seen that in a long time i think it'd be really interesting to rewatch it now and this is such a classic obama era movie in so many ways that's i think is really really fascinating to watch now a couple years out of that and they kind of shit the bed in terms of political commentary because they of course because this is a big disney film have to you know make the like bad actors in the system part of this like weird fake nazi group and not just like yeah american politicians yeah because there's like there's like a charitable way to look at this and an uncharitable way and the charitable way is to be like well this is set in a world where it was so easy for the evil hydra people to infiltrate the government and shield that no one even fucking noticed and everything went by which is definitely how the film portrays it but at the same time the film is definitely doing the kind of we're gonna wrap this up really neatly thing where they're like well we've got rid of all of the bad guys so we're just gonna continue on as normal because like you have to do that for the films to continue on in the structure of the franchise, which was like a much bigger problem for Civil War, because Civil War is like, the whole world is going to enact these laws that mean that everyone has to like announce their superpowers. And it's like, well, you can't continue that for any of the later films, which are meant to be interconnected, because it's massively overcomplicated, the setting. (laughs) Yes, but even with, and like, I think the biggest flaw of this movie is that they have to do the Hydra stuff. And I understand why they have to do it. But... I think it's still a big problem. And this is sort of where the, like, this is actually a massive, you know, corporate superhero movie and not just a drama thing comes in. Like, it it sort of is an unresolvable problem. But the fact that they're even doing the political commentary in the first place is still quite remarkable. I mean, I said to you when we were watching it, like, the fact this got made is wild. It's pretty impressive. And, like, on the opposite side of the coin... It really demonstrates the extent to which just all culture is just a scotch test because the number of conservative people who love Captain America and think he is great and reflects their worldview is high. It's like, you didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, which is like, if anything, it's easier to understand for the comics because the character's been going for so long that you can find a comic to agree like like the Bible, you can find content that will agree with yes. any viewpoint, you know? <laughs> Whereas yes. with the movies, I think his politics are very explicit. Like you were saying with kind of the drones and the surveillance aspects of this, the basic thrust of Steve Rogers' role in this film is like, because he is from the 1940s, it's not that he's like, oh, he has these old-fashioned values. It's like he, as a person, 
from childhood has always had a really clear personal sense of right and wrong, which almost always disagreed with the people around him. Like he's very stubborn. And then that carried over into World War II, where he had a really clear villain to fight back against. So he was both aware of the concept of like social injustice and also was just like, I know who the bad guys are. It's the Nazis. It's, it's completely fine to kill them. And then he literally just wakes up in 2012 with like minimal kind of social support. And everyone is just sort of expecting him to fall into this new role as a superhero and to work for S.H.I.E.L.D. And this film is about him, you know, he's doing that because he has nothing else to do. And it's this kind of classic veteran returning from war situation. But he never got the closure. And this is like one of the things that's like a massive theme in loads of Captain America fanfic. In this, he is surrounded by people who have just accepted their role as Red because everyone has kind of grown up in the quagmire of the forever war. And everyone who is in S.H.I.E.L.D. has like gone through this rigorous process of, you know, first of all, they've decided they want to work for S.H.I.E.L.D. And also they've gone through all the training and they have this very sort of like gloomy worldview of who the enemy is and whether the enemy is even a bad person and like everyone's very morally ambiguous and cynical and also a lot of them are literally Hydra agents and like this film is about Steve Rogers realising that like no one around him actually knows who the bad guys are and even the people he respects and likes uh, like Nick Fury and Black Widow even they are like their idea of who the villain is he is the person who's needed to like guide everyone back onto the right path so it's more about leadership and kind of political specificity than it is about fighting and superheroism in the kind of classic sense. Yes. Well said. I agree. (laughs) I think that's all correct. Um, I think all of this stuff about sort of him being a veteran in the movie is really well done as well. And obviously the Sam Wilson character is, represents that from like the modern day perspective. He's running like a veteran sort of therapy group thing. Yeah. He's he's a, he's an air force. He's a power rescue veteran who, is working at the VA. That ties in quite well with the fact that this is a movie about a depressed person. And obviously, you know, he's woken up after being like unconscious for 90 years. And as you said, all his friends are dead. So that's an extreme, extreme experience, but it's tying into a more like real experience that actual veterans who have not had that fake experience will have. And I think they deal with it quite intelligently and sensitively but what i like so much about the characterization of him in this film from that perspective i think in general as you were saying earlier i think that he's just characterized in a really intelligent way one of the things i like so much about him in this movie is that he's clearly depicted as an intelligent person and not just like he's so virtuous which he obviously is like you know of course The thing that's like so well done in a subtle way is like, yes, he's a good strategist, which I think is something you can figure out quite easily just from action scenes and the way, because that's like the, you know, that is one of the main concepts of the film is just sort of combat. But also he's a very good judge of character, which is a lot harder to illustrate without saying stuff that's really explicit. But there's loads of scenes where just by showing like the way he's looking at people and the way he's interacting with people and the way that he is or isn't suspicious, he's a great judge of character. And that literally starts with the first scene where he has this like meet cute with Sam Wilson and it's this combination of like he can see that Sam Wilson is a trustworthy person but also Sam Wilson is the only person who can really help him because he's never encountering anyone else who is this kind of intentionally emotionally open because Sam Wilson has the correct social skills for approaching traumatized veterans because that's his job. Right. 
And then the scene in the elevator where he gets ambushed, which I think is one of the best scenes in the movie, you can see that he simultaneously immediately clocks that something is not right. Something's going to about to happen. And then also is sort of tactically figuring out, like, how am I going to get out of this? And it combines his various abilities in a very interesting way and is just, like, shot and acted very well, I think. But he's really fucked up. And literally the entire movie is about him trying to kill himself. He just throws himself into all of these situations. In some cases, sort of necessarily, but in many cases, completely unnecessarily. Where he is risking his life in a way that's just like, oh, you want to die. Yeah, because it's like a direct continuation of the first film. Because the first film, it's like, yes, he takes a lot of risks. But the final act is him crashing a plane into the ocean. And it's an act of heroic self-sacrifice, but it's also... Definitely, he's just like, I've lost my best friend. It's okay for me to die. Yeah. And in this, like, he's he's has the fight with Betrock at the beginning, and he's like, I'm just going to take my helmet off. It's like, what? okay, sure. He, like, jumps out of buildings. There's one see- scene where he, like, drives his um, motorcycle through the, like, closing jaws of a bridge. It's like, dude, you need to fucking stop. Like, this just needs, you need to kind of calm down. Like, come on. And obviously this whole thing culminates with him just, like, lying there, allowing Bucky to, like, pulverize his face. Because if Bucky can't recognize and, like, acknowledge him as who he is, then it's not worth being alive. And then obviously Bucky does stop and saves him from drowning. But that's really dark. That's fucked up. That's a dark thing to be in a movie like this. And I think they handle it really well because they don't comment on that ever. Like they certainly, there's certainly stuff about him being kind of adrift in the world. And like Sam asks him in a conversation, like what makes you happy? And he doesn't have an answer for that. But it's very subtextual. It's very subtextual. But if you start thinking about it, it's not subtle. Like it's very clearly in there. And I think that that's very smart because you cannot have a film like this, a big mainstream superhero film made by Disney with a character who is trying to kill himself in a way that's like made explicit that like children well, it's are also going like to very watch, different right? from the way films like Batman where the kind of self-destruction is this masculine thing. And in this, it's like, it's not sort of a masculine self-loathing thing it's very different tonally and it's more to do with literally just being depressed and i think like something i was saying to morgan like during the the audio commentary is kind of the way the film's aesthetic plays into that because the russo brothers visually not like great artists you know <laughs> and also like in general the mcu unless you get like a really great director like ryan coogler Visually, like, there's not a lot of panache going on, right? They're very sort of straightforwardly shot and kind of the colour schemes are quite banal. And also there's a lot of CGI to contend with. But um, in this film, this slightly kind of bland urban setting really works um, because it's it's very grey colour palette. It's in Washington, D.C. There's loads of scenes where it's just like kind of grey outdoor government buildings, desolate offices and kind of the inside of Steve Rogers' house is really depressing. And it kind of just fits into the idea of him living in this really sort of sterile environment. Different from his child because he grew up in like bustling depression era New York. And then like the whole of the first film is this very sort of nostalgic sepia toned style and there's lots of kind of 1940s comedy stuff going on there as well and in this film it's like the first time you see any warm tones of color is when he goes to the va and sees sam wilson talking to a bunch of other trauma survivors 
And the bulk of the film is this green, metallic, depressing world of angles and no friendship. <laughs> well, I think there are sort of three problems with the movie. The first of which is the Hydra stuff. The second of which is is the visuals. I think that the key distinction is that what you're kind of talking about is the effect of the production design on the movie. And I think the production design is fantastic. I think they do an incredibly good job. I think that all of that kind of grayness and bleakness really comes across in an effective way. And then like just the design of the shield headquarters, I think is really effective. Like you just get a sense of that place from there. I think they actually shot the the lobby in the like Cleveland art. There's a definite bunker vibe. Yeah, it really works. And then the, the best production design scene is, um, Steve goes to an exhibit about himself at the Smithsonian and they've got all the sort of like historical stuff about his time in World War II and the other people who were in the unit he served with. And it looks so exactly like a museum, like an exhibit at the Smithsonian. It's just like, it, it's perfect. I think it's great. I think the production designers did a really, really good job. And the costume designers also, like the costumes are not flashy in any way, but that's perfect because these people would not be wearing interesting clothes. Like Sam Wilson, as I pointed out in the commentary, is wearing like dad jeans. It's the honestly time. so ridiculous that Anthony Ratmacki had to eat eleven thousand calories a day and work out for four hours or whatever the fuck it was. And it's like there's no reason for him to do that. No, you don't even see him wearing a t-shirt. He could be any shape under there. It doesn't matter. He doesn't have to do anything. Nope. It's absurd. Yeah, crazy. But I think the actual filmmaking in terms of like the shot selection etc is competent to bad well well, let's talk about the action scenes right because people love the action scenes in this movie and they especially love the hand-to-hand combat scenes and also like literally last week i saw on twitter like this old clip of sebastian stan practicing his knife moves had gone viral again you know and i completely agree with this like the hand-to-hand combat scenes in this movie are excellent choreography is very good it's relatively rare to see a film where you can absolutely tell that the actors who are not like, I mean, they're not action film actors. They're not sort of like experienced martial artists. They are performing a very kind of well choreographed hand-to-hand action scene where also the Winter Soldier and Steve Rogers both have very distinctive personal fighting styles. However, (laughs) the camera's fucking running all over the place and they're doing like way too much cutting. And like, usually when a film or TV show is kind of shaking the camera around and is editing really fast. Occasionally it's just because they want to look like the Born Identity, but usually it's a situation like Iron Fist where the actual fighting is not competent and they are trying to make things seem more dramatic by cutting like once every half second. And in this film, there are several scenes where it would actually be much better if you had a static wide shot and you could actually see all of the choreography instead of doing these really fast edits, which Morgan and I both find extraordinarily frustrating. Yeah, and and there it's still... Um like pleasurable to watch those hand-to-hand fight scenes because the choreography is so good. But that just, it for me, makes it like more frustrating because I can tell what they've done and it could have been so much better. And the other thing that I highlighted in the um, commentary, and I remember like writing a long Tumblr post about this at the time because I was so annoyed, <laughs> was that the way that they shoot the Winter Soldier in particular, I think really reveals the like general misguidedness of the 
direction in terms of just like the literal way it's shot because that character is supposed to be terrifying and the way that Sebastian Stan acts the character when he is like in winter soldier mode right is very frightening he gives a fantastic performance his body language is famously incredible his walk is very scary right (laughs) the whole design of that character is great the arm is great The, the whole get up it's great but they shoot him just like walking down the street. This is a wide shot. He's just walking. They kind of shoot his, he sort of looks down at where, I think it's like where Nick Fury is supposed to be. And it's the part where he's like vanished into the street incomprehensibly. And he's just sort of see his face. And that should be shot almost like a horror movie, right? Like he should be terrifying. And I haven't seen The Dark Knight in a long time, but I remember comparing it to that at the time and I thought about it again watching it this time like there's a scene where the Joker like crashes some cars coming out of a tunnel or something like he fucks something up on the street and he's standing in the middle of the street in the night and the way Nolan shoots him you you get this sense of him as this kind of like towering terrifying figure right and I think the camera is low and like you just get this whole sense of this guy as like an agent of chaos and you are frightened of him And that should be the way that they shoot this character, right? Like, he should be so scary. And the fact that they didn't do that, I think, reflects the general incompetence of the the production. Get it, like, making stuff look good. Because, like, also, like, the music... Like, most of the music in this film is just, like, standard Marvel, whatever, fanfares. But, like, the music for The Winter Soldier, his theme is really cool. They've got this kind of, like, screeching, like animal like robot noise it's great yeah. and that's another way that's like very kind of memorable intros for him and then yeah i mean i de- i definitely didn't pick up on the cinematography stuff at all but like mark is right <laughs> yeah yeah it, i mean this movie came out a while ago it's fine but it's just one of those things where so much of the movie is so good that then when the stuff that isn't great is very aggravating because it's like oh you could have been perfect god damn it but What can you do? It is what it is. Shall we talk about Natasha? Yes. We were discussing at length when we were doing the commentary about how good her characterization is in this movie compared to literally every other Marvel film in which she appears. Yeah. She barely has characterization in the other films. I mean, this is partly a symptom of the fact that she has not had her own film in which to solidify what her core characteristics are. Uh, but obviously it's mostly because she's a woman. <laughs> yes. And all of these films are written by men. And some of them are more sexist than others in terms of the way she's shot. And obviously there was that appalling Avengers movie where Joss Whedon was like, what if um, what if she was like in love with the Hulk and her oh my main neurosis was the fact I that she couldn't have children? Which was about- fucking out of nowhere. And I was just like, my brain was like coming out of my head. I was like, where the fuck did that come from? I mean, the answer is obviously specifically Joss Whedon and nowhere else. But anyway... <laughs> This film has the best Natasha Romanov. She has a sense of humor. And like all of the Marvel movies are funny and comedic in some way. But there's kind of a difference between a film being funny and a character having a sense of humor. And I think that Steve Rogers' sense of humor is very clear because like he's the protagonist. We already know him. But in this movie, Natasha, simultaneously, she is this cynical kind of experienced figure who has a dark sense of humor. But she also makes dad jokes, which is such an interesting kind of characterization point. And like her whole chemistry 
with Captain America is fantastic, partly because the actors have known each other for ages and are good friends. But they have this like great chemistry that like Morgan was kind of talking about like kind of the way they have like this staged kiss thing. Like how about you you talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think what's so smart about the way they handle that in this movie, I mean, the the movie is just very smart about the romance stuff and then sadly they fuck it up in the sequel, yeah. which we'll discuss a little bit at the end. But um in that there isn't a love interest as such. Yeah, because structurally Sam Wilson has the emotional support love interest role. Right. As you say, it starts with like the meet cute and they have lots of like very charming banter and that relationship is really well done and is very enjoyable to watch. But obviously the love interest of this movie is Bucky. And if they had tried to like weigh the whole thing down with a female love interest, it would have felt a, just like too much for the movie. It would have really muddled everything, but also it would have been very aggravating in terms of just like, come on. And there are a couple scenes with Sharon Carter, who is Peggy's niece. Yes. Yeah. Her niece. Um, Which is, which is what they wind up doing in the next movie. And it's just weird. But in this, it turns out that she's like spying on him. And so he is not interested in her. And that's the extent to which they attempt any kind of like heterosexual romance. But the stuff with Natasha, I think, really works because she's very flirty with him and he kind of flirts back with her. And they clearly have a certain degree of romantic chemistry, but it's also very apparent that that's not happening. Like, that is not going anywhere. That's not what is happening in this relationship. It's just kind of their dynamic. Yeah, and she's kind of testing him a little bit and, like, teasing him about girls it's not like, oh, these characters respect each other's boundaries because Natasha doesn't really respect no. his boundaries. <laughs> it's like, it's more like they both, she's making clear for herself that he's not going to try and sleep with her, but also it's kind of like they are, even though like they kind of are maybe attracted to each other and definitely like each other as friends, they both have made like a conscious choice that it's like not an interesting idea for them and it's they're not going to go there, basically. Right. And I that's like a thing that people do in real life that you don't see very often in movies because the default is always like, well, the man and woman must sleep together. And in this, it's clear that they are kind of attracted to each other, but they're just not interested in doing that. And I think it's very kind of like adult and interesting and complex. So kind of the idea of there being like a kind of a seductive spy character is often quite sexist but with Black Widow it is kind of baked into her character right that she is often like literally the the name of her character right um so she is kind of often an inherently sexy character but like the difference between this and most of the other films she's in is in this film it's like yes she is flirting and kind of having conversations about sex and relationships but she isn't sexualized whereas in like the Avengers her introductory scene is her like kicking off her shoes and like strangling a guy with her legs while wearing a mini dress and it's like why the fuck is that happening like that is because the audience of Joss Whedon's brain wants us to see Scarlett Johansson's feet like (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think you are totally right it's that she's not sexualized at all like obviously she looks good in this movie like she's Scarlett Johansson and they're not going to style her and like sweatpants but she is the way she's presented is just she's wearing like practical jeans <laughs> you know <laughs> like a jacket and it's very refreshing and she's really good in the movie the performance is really really good uh because she was given material that actually is like a human person wrote yeah and uh that seems like a human person would be much as I find ScarJo somewhat suspect on a personal level, <laughs> and many of her movie choices, I am like, why the fuck are you doing this? I mean, obviously the answer is money. But um, 
she's great in this and she can be great and I'm hoping that the people who are making the Black Widow movie get it right although there's really no way to tell at this point so we'll see fingers crossed there's no way it can be as bad as Red Sparrow which was (laughs) mind-blowing yeah I did not see it because why would I so we may as well talk about Sebastian Stan and Bucky at this point we've we've led up to it I think we've covered our other bases the word vulnerable passed my lips many times during our audio commentary Uh, it's so good. It's so good. I will say, my one caveat, before we just descend into, like, making noises, I really don't think he's in this movie enough. And we were kind of, you were pushing back against this while we were recording, and I'm sure we'll do so again. I mean, I want him to be in the film more. But I really (laughs) think, I really think there needs to be, like, one to two more scenes. And then the movie would be, along with the other two issues that I've already described, the Hydra stuff and the visuals, would be, like, perfect. Because... I remember the first time I saw it, before I had descended into the pit of fan fiction, I was like, okay, it's good. And then similarly, when I watched it with my mom a couple years ago, I had to like explain to her at length what was happening. And she was like, it's good. (laughs) If you do not have, and like when I went and saw it, I obviously had already familiarized myself with like the whole situation. Cause I knew there was going to be a lot of fanfic, but it took this till the second viewing when I had then already immersed myself with the like, and I mean, I wrote a big fan fiction like three days after seeing the movie. Like I, it didn't take very long, but I think if you, you kind of need to bring your emotional stakes to that component of the movie to get, as much out of it as there is possible to get out of it, if that makes any sense, right? Which at this point, like, that is literally how these films are all constructed, right? Because I think it's actually fair for a sequel to expect you to have the emotional kind of backstory from the previous film. Okay, which is what this one, this one expects you to be able to recognise Bucky, which not everyone will be able to do even if they've seen the first one. However, all of these Marvel movies now, not only that, they expect you to like have some kind of foreknowledge or at least you're going to have a vastly different experience if you're like know the characters which is one of the problems with Captain Marvel because like if you're a Captain Marvel fan you're going to be like this blew my mind and then a lot of people are going to be like I'm really not even entirely sure who this person is. Yes but what happened with this movie is that it came out obviously it's not like the first Iron Man and I think one of the reasons the first Iron Man for me is in that kind of top tier of movies is that it was is not bogged down at all by all of yeah. the stuff that came yeah. after, right? It's totally a standalone film. And this movie isn't. Like, it's tied in with the other MCU stuff. You know, Nick Fury is in it, Natasha's in it, whatever. But it is not like, for instance, Captain America Civil War, which descended into just, like, every single character is in this movie, and it's so bogged down with all the mythology that it sort of yeah. ceases to be an individual film. Like, it feels like its own movie. And it's early enough in the timeline of these films that all of the characters hadn't become completely like cultural lexicon. Everyone knows who all of them are, etc. And so... Yeah, this was like one of the first films of like phase two, or maybe even the first after Avengers. I think it was the second, because Thor 2 came before. Anyway, it was earlier. And so... I think that's part of what makes it good is that it's not kind of relying as much on all of the other crap, which also is part of what makes Ragnarok and Black Panther good is that Ragnarok obviously is the third Thor movie, but they basically just were like, we're going to do whatever the fuck we want and it doesn't matter. And then Black Panther basically just similarly was like, well, it's fine. You know, we're just going to do our own thing. And this movie feels like a sequel, but it 
feels more like a sequel than part of this like huge large tapestry of like essentially television at this point right like that's kind of how these movies function and so assessing it as a film and not a piece of television i think that they just needed to put in like one or two more scenes it works but i think if they had just upped that character a little bit more the emotional punch of the ending would be like so destructive even for a more general audience that's my take and it's already so well performed because um sebastian stan's emotional face is just because he is so frightening when he's in full winter soldier mode but like all of the stuff we see from him when he's not literally fighting is just so intense because we see he has a couple of scenes with Robert Redford, one of which is the milk scene where Robert oh Redford my God. Amazing. offers him one inch of milk at the bottom of a glass and every fan is like, why did they do this? And we will never know unless I manage to interview the Russo brothers and ask them for this specific detail. But um, yeah, it's sort of like the concept is that he is having his memory wiped um, regularly and he is being completely controlled by these hydro people but like he starts to get these flashes of memory and the performance that Sebastian Stan gives is so great because he does feel to start a certain extent tethered to the Bucky we see in the original movies because there are scenes where Bucky is really harmed and emotionally, emotionally vulnerable in the first Captain America movie so we've already seen him in that state and we know how attached he is to Steve so that's all the bedrock is there but he's so kind of like childlike and upset and confused in such a kind of like blank but really evocative way. It's amazing. Like the scenes where he's having his memory wiped and the scenes where he's kind of remembering Steve but not fully. And there's just such a great kind of like juxtaposition between that and his fight scenes where they have like so much weight and heft to the way he's hitting people with his scary fucking metal arm, <laughs> picking up machine guns and like flinging people around. And it's just like, yes, this doing so much for me but also kind of like just the backstory of like the way they both joined the military because the initial backstory in the first film is that it was world war ii bucky was called up and he, like the implication is that he was you know he was literally called up he didn't fucking sign up to be in the army and he goes to the army and he succeeds because he's like a very personable person and he's athletic and it turns out he's a really good shot so he gets good training and becomes a sniper but Steve is the one who really wants to join the army and he can't and he's like fucking volunteering all over the place. So like between them, Steve has always been the leader, even though Bucky seems like he should be the leader because he's the one who's like not a weakling, like in their earlier life. And then the fact that he got called up into the war and the fact that he followed Steve into battle after he became Captain America is the reason why he was captured by Hydra and why he was experimented on. Like, why the super soldier serum ended up in his bloodstream, you know? So it's, like, it's all tied into their relationship. And then the fact that he, like, winds up being this, like, horrific Hydra experiment. And then also, like, this is a completely un unintentional piece of subtext, but I just love the detail of um, Robert Redford's casting. Because obviously he gives, like, a great performance in this movie because he's fucking Robert Redford. And he's, like, a really clever choice because it's, like, kind of calling back to this era of 1970s uh, kind of Cold War movies. But also, young Robert Redford looks like Captain America. He's this blonde, square-jawed guy. So at some point, 20, 30, 40 years ago, when he first got his hands on the Winter Soldier, 
Maybe the Winter Soldier was like, yeah, this guy looks like a reliable leader. Something about my memory just makes me seem like I should trust this square-jawed blonde man who's telling me what to do. And it's like, no, he's evil. <laughs> he's evil. <laughs> oh, it's so fucked up. It's great. So good. So great good. to contemplate. It's so menacing and awful. <laughs> he's so good in this movie. It's so much fun. It's perfect casting. It's just like, I mean, who does America love more than Robert Redford? Very few people. And he's horrible in this. He's just a bad man. It's very enjoyable. Yeah, watching this and watching all of Sebastian Stan's sad faces really brought me back to seeing all of the gifs of him on Tumblr and his minute expressions 1,000 times was really fun. I was like, excellent. The amount of his life has been dedicated to this franchise and all the working out that he's had to do for it oh compared to the amount of screen time he gets is a constant agony to us and many other millions of people the world over. Yeah, it's bad. But like, it is amazing that even with the like very minimal screen time that he gets in this, the, his sad eyes just really managed to uh, convey a great deal, which is why everyone freaked out about him. And the sad romance. Like, because the character gets so little screen time, if he were not as good as he is, it would just totally not work. Zero percent. It would just be like, what the fuck is this? Like, I don't understand why the movie is ending in this way. Like, what is happening? Yeah, and we have so many examples of that because there is loads of superhero films where they'll have some character in for 10 minutes and you'll just be like, why should I care? Yes. Who is this? Yeah. (laughs) And in this case, it's just... I mean, really, really genius casting, I think. And he'd been in very little... I mean, he'd been, he'd done stuff, but not anything of particular note before this. So, I mean, the woman who does the casting at Marvel is obviously just, like, a crazy genius. I can't remember An her name. An absolute genius. Yeah, but she does, like, all of their big casting and famously manages to find people who are, like, basically the same as their characters. Well, Sebastian Stan specializes in being tormented and often gay and tormented like he's played a lot of like just miserable characters in a range of often not very good tv shows and independent dramas yeah um and in this he is just so tormented but in like a wonderfully layered way because when he's still bucky in the 1940s he's this sort of smirky flirty very charismatic great social skills guy but he's also got he's already got this dark side which is like the key thing to the fact that he gets transformed because like he already he already, like, is a serious person. He's not sort of as frivolous as he seems on the surface. And then by the time he goes to war, he's already traumatised by the time that he meets up with Steve again. And, like, given another life, he would not be a career military person. He would just have a job in America. But he has to stay on and take these horrifyingly dangerous missions because he has to keep his best friend safe. And then by the time you get to this point in the present day, it's like, everything is extremely awful. (laughs) Yep. It's real bad. The big scene with the two of them at the end of the helicarrier is just like one of my favorite things in movies. I just love it. It's very upsetting and very satisfying to me. With just like, just the idea that like the final battle of a movie, obviously the general expansive part of the battle is just as blah as any other of these. You know, it's like, oh, stuff smashing into each other. But the interpersonal stuff is wonderful. Partly because they both have such distinctive fighting styles and it's done so well, but also it's like they are so emotionally attached to each other. So it's like the final section of the film is literally Steve Rogers, as Morgan said, he is willing to die if Bucky doesn't remember him. And the whole kind of like one of the, one of the many underlying themes of this movie is just the idea of memory and kind of misremembering. And like Steve Rogers is the only one who remembers America as he thinks it is, but he also 
you know, he has no connection back to his old life because the only two people who are around who still remember him and his life both have faulty memories because it's Peggy Carter, his love interest in the first movie, is very elderly and can't remember clearly. And then obviously Bucky is an amnesiac. And like halfway through the film, they play this really sentimental 1940s kind of piece of jazz music, which also is about memory. And it's like, this is all very upsetting. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's just great. It's really good. And it's interesting to me now to see how the extent to which the fact that this is like the great romance of the MCU has been mainstreamed. Like people tweet about this all the time. And I don't mean fandom people. I mean like cultural critics. Yeah, the the idea of Stephen Bucky. Yes. And partly just because like, even if you're not like, oh, I'm like actually a shipper, which we are. But like, even if you're someone who's just like, oh, they're good. It's like everyone understands the basic concept of Sebastian Stan not getting enough screen time. Because in the later films, they had to sideline the final act of their of their storyline. <laughs> Horrendous. Horrendous. The fact that the movie that followed this turned into an Avengers film that was like actually all about Tony Stark. Appalling. A crime. A crime. It is a crime. Um, but like, I remember when the fandom stuff was blowing up in like a crazy way. It was very, it was a very interesting time on the internet because... There was this sense of like, does does Marvel know what's happening? Like, what? Oh my! Wow! This is like it was sort of unprecedentedly just like maniacal. Like everyone was just going nuts. And I went to Comic Con that year. That was the year that I went to Comic Con, which was an interesting experience. And um, I was like, I'm gonna buy some Captain America merchandise. Like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna give my money to Marvel. And there was like, the line was so long that I wouldn't even have been able to do it like it was just insane because they have like one booth in like the center of the hall where you buy stuff but also i like looked at the stuff they had and they genuinely had like no like women's t-shirts for captain america which is just so funny because like every person we know who's a captain america like mega stan is a millennial woman it was crazy (laughs) they had almost no captain america merchandise at all they had basically nothing for women period. And certainly nothing for women that had anything to do with Captain America. And I was just like, you have no concept of your audience, even slightly. And this was also sort of the period where everyone was really advocating for a Black Widow movie and they were refusing to do it. And it was just like, oh my God, like, wow. And it feels to me as though, not from Marvel's perspective, obviously, but in terms of like the general culture, that everyone's now just like, yeah, obviously, like Stephen Bucky, or that's the only real romance here. And I was like, yeah, like I've seen so many tweets, so many tweets. It's like, yes, thank you for validating me in 2014. <laughs> like, if, if you're like familiar with fanfic fandom, which many of our listeners, of course, are, you'll be familiar with the idea of different fandoms having very different moods and types of output, you know? So it's like, obviously, you know, everyone like knows that like some fandoms are just like shitty, either either, like everyone (laughs) is just constantly fighting or all the kind of fanfic output is really low quality for whatever reason. But it's also kind of like the tone of what people are interested in, you know? So it's like, if you look at like Teen Wolf fandom, the vast majority of the fanfic is just like quite straightforward, tropey romance stories. And a lot of them are just set in the suburbs because that's like what the audience is interested in. And um, with Harry Potter, the politics of Harry Potter stories is often kind of centrist liberal. You know, you don't get like a lot of radical Harry Potter content. And oh yeah, and like hockey fandom, there's loads of fucking surreal, like 
urban fantasy. Like it, sometimes <laughs> it's really strange and like and like unpredictable, right? But with Captain America, it kind of feeds simultaneously what of the audience is getting from the movie and what the movie is intentionally giving you, you know. And sometimes those things were odds, like Stargate produced a lot of extremely intelligent fanfic because people were trying to fix the fact that the content in the original is so fucking stupid. They've not explained anything. So people were like, I'm going to make it better. With Captain America, you've got loads to pick apart. There's loads of kind of different layers of, kind of subtext in the films and interesting visual stuff going on in the backstory. And also it is in this incredibly complex kind of world of American political and military history. So the fanfic you end up with is like, both get stuff which is like very emotionally complex because you've got these characters where you've already got this very deep sort of, you know, multi-layered emotional relationship and kind of both of their character arcs to do with kind of their trauma and their childhood and their upbringings. But you also have the political context. So there's loads of fanfic, which is just sort of basically stuff where it's like Captain America is our avatar of sort of modern progressive politics. Oh yeah, Captain America is a feminist and loves gay rights and all the conservatives assume that he's going to be like an angry patriot and he's not. That's like the most basic level. But there's also been like epic, epic fanfics, which just go really deep into sort of the specifics of what life would be like if you were like a queer socialist in 1930s New York, Brooklyn, which Steve Rogers could have been and that kind of thing. And also just kind of the whole fact, like the concept of him as a character who is both a patriotic American icon, a celebrity against his will, where people misinterpret and reinterpret his public image compared to like what he's actually like as a person and the fact that he missed out on the 1950s which is something that I think the vast majority of viewers aren't thinking about not because they are like dumb but because why the fuck is anyone thinking about that apart from nerds like us (laughs) missing out on the 1950s gives you a completely different conception of just western life because everything we think of kind of instinctively as old-fashioned is either Victorians or 1950s yeah but it's like, that's not the way like time and politics work. And the fact that he just skipped that whole post-war period means that he was aware of like the radical politics of being a working class man who was the child of immigrants in New York. And then also was like fighting Nazis voluntarily alongside people who were conscripted. And like, you know, in the original first Captain America movie, he's in an integrated unit, which wasn't even legal at that point. And then you just like plop him over into like Obama era surveillance culture and drones in the 21st century. So it's like, there's so much to fucking dig into there. <laughs> I I don't remember reading as much of the like explicitly political stuff in terms of like engaging with that. Oh, I know. I remember. <laughs> um, it was definitely the best like fandom experience I've ever had was, was that period. And it was the most engaged I ever was for most, like when I was a teenager and in college, I mostly just like read fan fiction and that was basically it. Like I wasn't actively participating. Well, this is one of the few where it's like simultaneously really brainy and big enough to have a huge amount of content, which is yes, what you need. Correct. And, um, and I wrote a lot and what was so fun about it for me was that it felt like there was like a huge conversation going on with the writing and obviously also like meta on tumblr like there was a ton of meta so a literal conversation as well but you had these sort of tropes developing within the fan fiction and then something would sort of go in a different direction because the trope had gotten like too popular i mean the last thing i wrote i think it was the last thing certainly the last long thing was literally like it was sort of i literally just like listed all the tropes that i had gotten really annoyed with and wrote the opposite (laughs) of all of them and in my opinion it was a very good story i reread a year or two ago and was like oh this was very good but 
it was sort of like the ideal experience of fan fiction, right? In terms of everyone sort of collectively commenting on something and then reacting to that with fiction in a way that actual published fiction, you just don't have the... Obviously, published fiction is reacting to other published things. Like everyone is is, um, inspired by other things or critiquing them or whatever, but it takes so much longer. Whereas when you're like frantically writing tens yeah. of thousands of words like every week like it just happens so quickly in a way that was really cool to experience and I know that I personally like I had also I was also kind of working on a book or something at that point but um one of the things that I find really fun about fanfic and like I don't really write it much anymore but I was at that time a lot was that like I could just try all this experimental stuff in terms of like the prose and that's not how most fan fiction is written, but there was such a huge audience for it in that particular fandom. <laughs> yeah. Like, obviously, it's still kind of a niche thing, but like, people were really into it. And that was really fun. And there were other people who were writing incredibly kind of like out there stuff in terms of like the prose they were writing, along with just kind of like fun, tropier stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of um, not full multimedia but there's a lot yes. of kind of multimedia-esque mm-hmm. content in Captain America. And it's because there was so much interest in kind of the idea of history and like historical revisionism and the idea of there being this kind of dual depiction of Captain America. Like there's the there's Steve Rogers as the man and then Captain America as the political figurehead, which is just, I mean, it's also like, it's like literally just my interest. Like that's, that's how I, that's, that's a kind of story that I'm really interested in. But like, it means that there's all these stories where, it's things that are kind of examining like the political and historical record of Captain America and how he influenced the 20th century. We also wrote. <laughs> I was like halfway through the sentence. I was like, we did one. <laughs> Even though I knew we were going to discuss it, I'd still forgotten it because it was so many years ago. Yeah, we did one, which was like um, a multimedia one, which was about, it was called Steve Rogers at 100. We did it with five or six other friends. And it was like. It was five people total. Yeah. So it was five, it was five people. And it was like, it was just writing all these different, Captain America movies within the MCU. So there was like the really corny 1940s ones and there was like really awful, like bombastic 1980s sort of jingoistic action films. And like there was like a French independent gay romantic drama and that kind of thing. And they all had posters by a fan artist. (laughs) Yeah, it was so much fun. And we did it in like a week. Like it was, this is what this fandom was like. Everyone was just sort of like on drugs. Like that was what it felt like. It was just, it's like frantic, you know, and I did like, like Aaron and I did a convention panel about that. And like, but like within halfway through the convention panel, I was just like, we don't actually have anything to talk about because we did this whole fanfic in like four days. (laughs) We still get so many comments on this thing. And what's so funny to me is that you get like all of these people, like bless them who are like the amount of research that this must have taken. And I'll be like, yeah, that is not. Well, I guess it's kind of like how, as an artist, what people are paying for is not the five minutes it took to draw the cartoon, but the twenty years of training. And with us, the research we did was having a vast cinematic knowledge. Right. So what was (laughs) so fun about it was that we all did the sort of um, different types of movies that we were like experts in. So like our friend Charlotte did one that was like a nineteen. 50s movie and then the the French one and she knows so much about those things the French movie that's the one that everyone's still like I wish I could watch that film and I'm like me too I agree (laughs) and then mine were like I did one that was kind of based on like Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers about which I know a great deal and then like I don't even fucking remember like one of them was like a porn parody and the one that I did was 
It's like at the time, this was like only just as I'd started doing professional writing. So I did it in the voice of my pre-professional blog, by the way, on which I did like a seven part analysis of Captain America Winter Soldier, which I will link to in the show notes. But like, I can't promise the writing's that good because it was, you know, five years ago. But um, I'd done in my own voice a blog review of like a 1980s or 90s, just like low quality, but technically licensed Captain America action movie. And then like, like last year or the year before, my parents gave me for Christmas a box set of the original like 80s and 90s low budget Captain America movies. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, I predicted this very accurately because I watched so many bad movies at that time. And it was like, oh, I remember the other one. I, I wrote the like academic intro to the whole oh, yeah. thing. Yeah, it was so much fun. But this is the kind of thing that like, I mean, I've never experienced anything like that. In, in all my years of being a fandom person and that kind of just like energy and creativity and enthusiasm and mania was great and like I love this movie but that sort of stuff was what was the highlight of that period for me over the actual content of the film for sure was just like doing all of that and I really want to reread a bunch of the the thick I bookmarked now, which I was looking at after I watched this and was like, oh yeah, a lot of this was really good. <laughs> there was also a lot of good stuff about Peggy Carter and Howard Stark. Like it was just a great time. It was really good. We'll we'll link to things in the show notes, including our masterpiece. Thank you so much to Jay for sponsoring this, this episode. This was fantastic. <laughs> so much fun. I mean, a true trip down memory lane. I really can't believe that was five years ago. It does not feel like that long. Yeah, this was great. We're going to have to come up with some other thing to put on our diamond tier. So if you have any suggestions, message yeah, us. Yeah, because previously it was like we had, before we used the kind of $100 tier for really bad movies you'd had to force, force us to watch. And then we were like, Captain America is very desirable, though. Yes. Capitalists. <laughs> exactly. So we'll we'll figure out which direction to go in. Um, but hopefully we can come up with something fun. Uh, but this was really great. So thank you. Um, if you would like to listen to that commentary track or any of our other commentary tracks or bonus episodes or blog posts, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. If you would feel so inclined, we would also greatly appreciate a rating or a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast service you use. It really helps uh, listeners find us. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, you can find my work on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hellos underscore Taylor. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. My AO3 handle is M underscore Lee and there is a whole fucking lot of Captain America fan picture there. <laughs> so knock yourself out. Our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. We are on Twitter at overinvestedpod and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.